Jesus, thank you for who you are, for being with us, Lord. And um, I just pray that you would meet us here, Lord. And just pray that you would change hearts, Lord, today. You'd come and, and change minds. And, uh, just help us to think rightly, feel rightly, and do rightly um, when it comes to you, Lord, when it comes to life. Um, I thank you, Lord, that your word uh, does not return void, um, but it, it accomplishes what you send it out to do. And God, we just rely on that truth that you do what you'll say you'll do. And we just trust you, Jesus. And we lean on you. Our hope is built on nothing less, Jesus, than your blood and your righteousness, Lord, because that's our righteousness. Thank you, Lord. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. And you may be seated. And if you have your Bibles, uh, turn with me to Psalm 78, Psalm chapter 78. And uh, if you need a Bible, just slip up your hand, and I will make sure that you are provided with one. You can borrow it this morning. If you don't have a Bible, you can have it and take it home with you. But it's Psalm 78, and uh, Psalms is real easy to find. It's, uh, it's pretty much right in the middle of your Bible. It's a pretty big book, so Psalm 78. And we're going to uh, start at the beginning of the chapter, verse 1, read on down through verse 8. Word of God says, Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He has established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children, so that they should set their hope in God, and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments, and that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. Let's pray together. Father God, open our hearts and minds to receive your word that will be preached to us this morning. Father, thank you for your word. I pray that we would hear it, know it, understand it, love it, feast on it, enjoy it, meditate it, meditate upon it, and know how it applies to our life right here, right now, this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Deemer. Well, we are going to break away from our journey through Acts uh, for the summer. We've been going through Acts verse by verse, chapter by chapter. So if you've been with us for a while, um, really, we've been going through Acts for almost a year now, and we're about halfway done, so give us another year and we'll get done with Acts. But we're going through Acts just chapter by chapter and verse by verse, but, um, but felt led by God just to, just to step away from Acts for a while. We knew when we started a long series like that that there may be times when we, we break away, and Acts chapter 12 is actually a very good jumping off point, good, good place to stop, and then... When the fall rolls around, or late August, early September, when we kick back in our um, Bible study times on Sunday morning, then we'll start back in, the, in Acts as well. We'll pick back up in Acts chapter 13. So 
for the summer, though, um, I felt led to just take us through some different psalms this summer. So I've, the series is called Summer Psalms, and today we're going to be as, in Psalm 78, as you heard, and we're going to look at five or six psalms this summer, and then end the summer with a uh, look at another Old Testament book. So that's, that's our aim this summer, is to get into the book of Psalms and to let God speak to us through the book of Psalms. Now, why, why did I feel led to the book of Psalms? Well, I've always, first of all, wanted to do a series called Summer Psalms. And matter of fact, I'd like it to kind of become a tradition in our church to take the summer to just begin to preach through some psalms. There's 150 of them, so it gives us a lot of summers, all right? And it's, a good, it's a, always good to go back and to, to go back to the Old Testament and hit some passages like the Psalms. And secondly, I've just felt compelled lately personally and then also on a church level of uh, trying to get us back to really the heart of worship. And uh, you, I've talked to some of you guys about this. And, and, and um, I think when you get into a, a new building and there's new responsibilities and there's things going on and everybody's so busy, it's very easy to lose our focus on what we're doing here because it's not about these chairs and this building and about the tasks that are come along with the building it's about worshiping the risen savior and and no book in all the bible is more about worship than the psalms and so let's go through the psalms and and the psalms are um, some pretty raw worship i mean there's lots of emotions in the psalms um, there's 150 psalms the word psalms is simply uh, a translation of the hebrew word songs um, and so it's poems and songs written, most of them written by David, but written by other people as well, including a guy by the name of Asaph, which was David's music minister. It was David's Mark Barney Castle, okay? And, uh, and there's some other guys uh, as well that wrote some, some of the songs. But there's 150 of them, and they're broken into five books. And I'm not going to go into all the structure and how it's all broken down. But there's a lot of emotion in the Psalms. There are songs... Poems, songs of, 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 of just thankfulness toward God. Just pure, raw thankfulness. There are songs of cries for help. There are songs that seem like complaining, really. Complaining against God and saying, God, why are you doing this? But that's real worship. That's raw worship. I think we kind of try to make worship too tidy sometimes. And uh, we want to be all prim and proper in the way we come to God. And we should come to God with respect and with awe and a fear of the Lord. But at the same time, God wants us to come to him with authenticity. And to pour out our hearts to him. And, and to share what's on our heart with him. And that's what the Psalms are all about. So we're going to look at the summer Psalms. We're going to look at Psalm 78 today. Um, and so just stay there in Psalm 78. Uh, keep your, we're, that's, we're going to stay in that Psalm all day long. I'm not going to look at the whole Psalm. As Deemer read, he only read the eight, first eight verses. This Psalm has 72 verses. It's one of the longest psalms in all the psalter so i'm not going to read i'm not going to um, preach on all 72 but i've got a title for today's message um, that i got from this passage and and i'm calling it simply this generational architects generational architects and you all back one slide for me there go one slide there you go generational architects um y'all may remember uh, back in 2001 a news story, May 25th of 2001. Um, I guess most news stories kind of got swallowed up in the bigger event of 2001, which was 9-11. But earlier in that year, um, there was a, a wedding going on in a dance hall or a wedding hall called the Versailles Wedding Hall in Jerusalem. 
in Israel. And, uh, and I don't know if you saw the footage of it or not, but there was raw home video of this on YouTube. You can probably still find it today. But there was this wonderful wedding going on, this celebration. The generations had converged for this celebration of this wonderful event in the lives of, of two people. And, and they were there in this dance hall, or this wedding hall, and they were celebrating, and they are out in the middle of the floor dancing. And all of a sudden, in an instant, the floor gave way and disappeared. I don't know if you guys, do you all remember seeing that? And uh, the floor just disappeared, and the people, about 100 people standing on the floor, just all of a sudden were gone. And the person with the camera was right at the edge of where that, that floor had collapsed. And so all, it was just like people were in front of him, and then they were gone in an instant. And, and out of that hole came, came a plume of just dust and debris. And they were on the third floor. And that third floor fell to the second floor, which then collapsed onto the first floor and pancaked all together. And the result of that tragedy was that 28 people had died. What had meant, what had supposed to be this wonderful celebration uh, of a great event in the lives of these families turned into a terrible tragedy. Well, in the subsequent months, um, investigations were done, and there were some charges brought. There were charges brought against the owners of the Versailles um, wedding hall because they had actually removed some pillars that were in the building to create more dance space. Intending to make the parties better, they removed an important part of the structure. There was also charges brought against the uh, engineer of the building. It had discovered that he had cut some corners and had not done everything up to code, and the inspectors had not discovered it until after the tragedy. And then there was also charges brought against a guy who invented a product called Pow Cow. Now, I had never heard of Pow Cow until I started looking into this, but Pow Cow is a method of construction designed to save money and to save time. And here's how it works. I'm, I'm actually quoting um, an article from um, a Jerusalem newspaper. It says, The Pow Cow method is a money saver in, in and this is how it works, in that in place of reinforced steel installed between concrete layers, it uses corrugated boxes as the stress support system. However, the boxes can end up floating between the concrete layers. If something goes wrong, the concrete will then give way. And I'm thinking, do you really have to be trained in structural engineering to know that corrugated cardboard boxes just aren't going to hold up the way reinforced steel will? Well, this pow-cow method of construction was outlawed, actually, in 1996, way before uh, this tragedy happened. And uh, after the tragedy happened, they went around and tried to find as many buildings as they could that had this horrible method of construction in it. And so I got to thinking this morning, this text, Generational Architects, as we're building our homes and we're trying to instill into the next generation a passion and a love for Christ, there are ways we can do that that save us time and save us uh, effort and uh, that maybe we are intending to, 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 to do good and, and uh, maybe our intentions aren't bad, but, but it ends up being as weak and as fragile as that corrugated box concrete system and there's ways to go about teaching the next generation the truth of God that is solid and rock solid like steel Psalm 78 as I began to just think about what Psalm to do today um, you know a couple of weeks back when we had our um, dedication service I mentioned during the service that uh, Joshua chapter 4 
was an influential passage as we planted the church. And we got the whole idea for the rocks from Joshua chapter 4. And then I also mentioned Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 10 as another influential passage in in why we planted a church with a vision of the generations coming together, Uh, all generations, and, and breaking down the barriers of the generations. I heard a pastor speak just this week. He was talking about bringing down barriers in the church, and and it was actually a question and answer session, and people were talking about how do we how do we break the the the, the racial barrier in the church, and how do we how do we break the socioeconomic barriers in the church? And he said, you know, one of the biggest barriers in the church is the generational barrier that we've erected in the churches today, and that's got to come down as well. And so that was kind of the vision of Harbin's was to be a church where the generations converge, uh, people. Uh, uh, investing in each other, investing in the next generations to come. And, uh, and that's for everybody in the church, whether you're a, a parent with children or you're a couple who hasn't been able to have children or you're a grandparent with your children already out of the home or you're a single person. We, we are investing all in each other and all the generations converging and, and, and seeing God do a work in our church. And so the other verse, the other passage other than Deuteronomy chapter 6 and um, Joshua chapter 4 was this one, Psalm 78. No passage of Scripture has had more of an influence on my life than Psalm 78. I've never preached it here at Harbin's, um, but it's been very influential behind the scenes at Harbin's. It's been influential in my life since I was involved in children's ministry. But uh, as I was trying to think through what psalm to preach this week, um, God kept bringing me back to Psalm 78, and honestly, I didn't want to preach it. I didn't want to preach Psalm 78 because as I read Psalm 78, God was preaching to me first. And, um, uh, and, and I just, there's been circumstances and things in my life recently. And, and as I read this Psalm, I just realized God was just preaching to me first. <laughs> and, and, and I was listening to a, um, Mark Dever this week, who's, who's a great pastor on on Ecclesi- He teaches a lot. He's a great pastor, period. But he also does a lot of teaching on ecclesiology and how the church should be structured. And, and one of the things he was saying was that a preacher can't preach a good sermon unless it's been preached to him first by God. And that certainly has happened to me this week as I went through this passage. And God just was hammering me with it, hammering me with it, hammering me with it. And I didn't want to preach it. <laughs> I didn't want to preach it because I was so convicted by it. Because I haven't been doing these things that I need to be doing as a dad in my home. And I haven't been doing these things to the level that I need to be doing them and leading our church to do them. And so this has been a been a been a very intense week for me personally as I studied this passage. And so I as I preach this today, I want you to know that that um that I'm with you. I'm preaching I'm not I'm not speaking to you. I'm speaking to us. And that's the way it always should be. Um I was reminded of a quote by John Newton. And John Newton, you know who John Newton is? Do people know who John Newton is? Yeah, John Newton was the great pastor in England. If you saw the movie Amazing Grace, it, he, was, he was kind of William Wilberforce's um, uh, a mentor and, and spiritual guide. And John Newton wrote Amazing Grace, one of the greatest, considered the greatest hymn of all time. And you think about the great thing. He wrote, I think, over 150 different hymns. You think of all the great things he accomplished in his life and all the great things he did. And he came from a background where he was a slave owner and a slave ship captain. And God rescued him out of that horrible, sinful lifestyle. But all his life, John Newton lived by this sort of motto. He said, I am not what I ought to be. 
I am not what I wish to be. I am not what I hope to be. But I am not what I once was. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And that's how I kind of came to this passage this week. I am not what I need to be. And I'm not what I ought to be. I'm not what I wish and hope to be. Um, But you know what? God has brought me on a path. I'm not what I used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. And I pray that God will help me be a better generational architect. I don't want you to think as we read this passage today, I'm just talking to parents because I'm not. I'm talking to the whole church body. I think had someone spoken to my life when I was a single young man, that it was still my responsibility to speak into the other generations, even though I wasn't a dad. That would have helped me out a lot. It would have helped me grasp the larger picture of the family of God. And I want people to know here, if you're here this morning and you don't have children, or you're here this morning and and you feel like your job's done, my kids are out of the home, thank goodness, I'm done. The family of God is still your family. And you're still to invest into the next generations, plural. And so that's what I want us to talk about today is being generational architects. I just said this term when I was in a children's pastor's meeting or something, I don't know. And I said this term, generational architects. And I remember Heather writing it down and she's like, oh, I like that term. And so I've kind of used it a lot now, generational architects. And that's what we are. We're building the next generations. And Psalm 78 is all about that. I want to narrow down our focus even farther than what we read. I want to focus on verses 4 through 8. But here's the structure of the psalm. Verses 1 through 3, Asaph is talking about what he's going to do. He says, I'm going to share with you a parable. I'm going to share with you these stories. I'm going to share with you these dark sayings of old. And he's telling people, hey, listen to me. What I'm about to say is very important. And then in verses 4 through 8, he says why it's important. That's going to be our focus today, verses 4 through 8. Here's why it's important, because the generations to come are depending upon you hearing what I have to say and applying it. And then in verses 9 through 72, he kind of gives us this parable, this story that he promises to talk about at the very beginning of the chapter. Now, who is Asaph? I mentioned earlier, he was a, he's a music minister. He was David's appointed, uh, one of the guys that David appointed to help lead worship and, and, of course, David left the, the plans and, 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 the, and the guidance to his son Solomon to build the temple. And once the temple was built, Asaph was the chief musician in the temple. And so a lot of the Psalms, I think 12 of the Psalms, were written by Asaph. And this is what he says in the verse three verses. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. What does he mean here? A parable and dark sayings of old. It's simply, the word here simply means a story or a teaching. Uh, when we think of parables, we think of the parables of Jesus, right? And some of Jesus' parables are pretty straightforward. You've got the, 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 the parable of um, the Good Samaritan, okay? It's pretty straightforward. Other parables are a little bit harder to understand, like the parable of the, of the weed, of the, of, the, of the seed being scattered and and falling on the different soils. And, and his disciples come to him and said, can you tell us what that means? And he, and he has to explain it to them. And, and so that's what we usually think of when we think about parables. And, but, but in reality, the word parable simply can, means a story. And so it can be a true story. And what Asaph's about to tell them in verses 9 through 72 is a true story of the history of Israel. 
and what they have done and what God has done, how God has been faithful despite their lack of faithfulness. And so he's about to tell them the story, but it's kind of a parable in the sense that it's, 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 it's kind of hard to understand as well because if you read verses 9 through 72, you see how faithful God is over and over and over again, yet the people keep forgetting him over and over and over again. And you sit there and you look at it and you go, oh my goodness, how can they keep forgetting God? Look at all the things he's done. How can they keep forgetting God? And sometimes when I read the Old Testament, and I especially read about the Israelites and how they begin to grumble the moment they come out of Egypt, I say, my goodness, don't they even understand? How can they be like that? And then, then I realize I'm, I'm Israel as well. That's me. I would have been doing the same thing because I'm the same sinner, sinful person that those people were. And I would complain just the same way they did. And so it's really a story, verses 9 through 72, is really a story of, of what mankind has always done. God has been faithful. Man has rejected God. God has judged, but then he's shown mercy. And then it kind of goes in a cycle. The Israelites would then receive God's mercy, acknowledge God, but they weren't sincere in their lips, and they would turn once again and forget God, and then God would judge and show mercy once again. So verses 9 through 72 are the parable that he's talking about. And we're not going to uh, meditate upon that. It's really broken down into several parts here. It's uh, God delivering them out of Egypt, God performing miraculous deeds in the wilderness, um, God judging his people because they forget him while they're in the wilderness, and they even respond with repentance, but it was insincere repentance. In verses 40 through 55, it talks about them conquering the promised land with a new generation of people, yet they continued to forget God. They continued to forget that he delivered them from Egypt and that he had brought them into the promised land. Verses 56 through 64, we read of their continued rebellion and, God's, and them testing God and his rejection of them. Yet the psalm ends with hope because God answers the stubbornness of his people by choosing the line of David. The promised Messiah was going to come from the line of of David. So the psalm ends with great hope. And this story of the people of Israel is really a parable. And it's the conundrum of the ages. Why would God love us so much? Why would God be so merciful to us? A rebellious people who forget him so quickly. And Asaph wants us to consider our own sinfulness. Asaph wants us to consider our own rebelliousness so that we can extol God's greatness, his mercy, and his wonderful deeds that he's done. And we can hope in him alone for our salvation. And on this side of the cross, it means that we consider the final work of God on Calvary, on the cross, and what he's accomplished. So with that context, let me focus now on verses 4 through 8. These verses are a call for God's people to be generational architects. If we truly understand the parable uh, and understand the story, Israel's story, and our own story, we'll understand the gravity and the importance of passing on the truth of God and his glory and his grace to the generations to come. So I want to ask two questions. First of all, what are our building materials going to be? What are we going to build with? So if we're going to be generational architects, we've got to have the right type of materials assembled to build with, and we're going to go through four materials. Now, I think we're going to be able to get through the whole sermon, but if I get stuck on the four materials, then the next four points, because there's eight points in today's sermon, the next four points, which is the picture or what we're aiming for, then I'll do those next week. But I'm going to try to get it all done today. But So we're going to look at the materials, and then we're going to look at what we're aiming for, what the big picture is. So an architect has a, has a drawing, and this is what he wants the building to look like, and this is the stuff he needs in order to get there. So we're going to look at what we need, and we're going to look at what, the, what we're aiming for. And the first thing I want us to see 
in the materials is we need urgent intentionality. Urgent intentionality. Verse 4, we will not hide from their children, but tell to the coming generations the glorious deeds of the Lord and His might and the wonders that He has done. I'm going to bring this down here because with the small group we have today, I don't like preaching from up high. We will not hide. There's an urgency here that Asaph has. We will not hide from our children, from these generation. We will not hide the great deeds of the Lord, but we will tell them. We will not hide. So this first load of materials deals with a, a, a dose of urgency and intentionality that we have to have about reaching the generations to come. God's people have always got to have urgency. And as I struggled through this psalm this week and dealt with these things in my own life, and I looked at my son Noah, who's turning 12 in August, how much more urgent I feel. Because he doesn't have that much more time with us. And my daughter Olivia's turned 9, and Emma Kate's about to turn 4, my goodness. And, and, and I've got to be more urgent. And, and it's so tempting. It's so tempting just to... To turn on the TV when I know God's telling me to turn off the TV and go invest in your children's lives. And it's so easy just to, to take that time when I'm tired and I don't feel like being with anybody. And I just want to go sit at the computer and check on the progress of, of the injuries of the U.S. national team as the World Cup's approaching. It's so easy for me to do that and, 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 and not realize that those little moments add up. I'm chipping away at that time, and it adds up, and it adds up, and it adds up, and it adds up, and I'm not being urgent enough, because when I get to heaven, God's not going to hold me accountable for Noah's faith. He's not going to hold me accountable for Olivia's faith. They will have to make their own moral choice to follow God or not. He will hold me accountable to the time I spent with them, and whether or not I invested in them. That's where he'll hold me accountable. And that's, that's where God's been dealing with me this week in a lot of ways. And be more urgent. Heather has a clock counting down on her blog. I hope I get this right. It counts down how much time we have left to invest in our children. And um, it actually makes me depressed when I go to your blog and I see it because... It's, it's ticking away. But you know what? We should have that. We should have that. We should have that on our iPods and our iPhones and in the corner of our television sets, in the corner of our, our computer screens. We should have it surgically implanted into our arm. Something to make us urgent and realize that the next generation needs to hear about the praiseworthy deeds of God now. We cannot wait. It's been said don't quite agree with this statement, but it's been said that the church is only one generation away from extinction. I heard Josh McDowell say that um, a couple of different times, and I've heard him speak. He said the church is only one generation away from extinction. I don't believe that because the church ultimately is in God's hands. And God's not going to let his flame be extinguished before he comes back to receive his bride. So the church is never one generation away from extinction. But I understand what he's saying because God can remove his favor and, and move his church in a new direction that may have nothing to do with the United States of America. We've seen it. Uh, it's really interesting if you study the history of the church. The gospel has spread westward. 
from, from Jerusalem out in the book of Acts, we read, we've been reading about how it's been spreading, and it's been spreading westward, and it spread to Europe, and it took hold in Europe, but then corruption set in. The moment government got involved, corruption set in. And corruption set into the church, and, for, and there was dark periods in the church, but then all of a sudden there was this, this um, resurrection of biblical truth during the Reformation and the gospel, and once again, missions exploded onto the scene a couple hundred years later, and the gospel began to spread out again, and it was spread again. It was spread into South into the Africa, and then spread westward again across the Atlantic into the New World. And now, where do we see the most on-fire believers? Where do we see God doing miraculous work? You hear reports of miracles happening. It's in China. And you know what? There's actually a group of believers in China that under, they believe that their job is to complete the circle. Their job is to take the gospel to the Muslim world, to take the gospel back to Israel back to Jerusalem, that they will be the generation that finishes the Great Commission. That gives me chills. But I also realize, as the gospel has spread westward, God has moved his favor, and we've seen the church die in places like Europe. It's not dead completely. There's still a witness in Europe. But we've seen in, lar- in, in many ways, churches die as they've abandoned the gospel. And so, this is urgent. And when I say that it's only one generation away from extinction. I mean to remind us that, that it only takes one generation for people to begin to stray from God. Joshua chapter 24, 15. You guys remember this passage. As Joshua, right, as he's about to go back to be with the Lord, he says, And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, he's talking to the people of Israel, Choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your, fa- your fathers served in the region beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in the lands that you now dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. He said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And the people said, we'll do that too. We'll serve the Lord as well. And so Joshua, the book of Joshua ends on this triumphant note. And then you get to the book of Judges. And you read this, Judges 2, verse 7 and following. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua... And all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance at Timnath-Heres in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gash. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And listen to this. And there arose another generation after them, who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. Joshua chapter 4, the beginning of the book of Joshua, he tells them to build this memorial stone so that when your kids ask, what is this all about? You can tell them about the glorious works of the Lord. They may not, they're not going to be able to see the, the Jordan River dry up. They're not going to be able to see the walls of Jericho come crashing down. But it's your responsibility to tell them about the mighty works of God. And so we have generations arising here in this church. And, and they, they're not going to remember meeting at the, the, the cafeteria with only four or five families wondering, God, is this ever going to take? They're not going to remember that. And you've got to tell them. God's done great things. He's been faithful to us. There's been times in our lives that God's done things in our life and delivered us or, or, or brought us through a time of difficulty or, or 
showered us with special blessings, and we should be telling our kids about those all the time because they're not going to see it, and we just think about it for ourselves, but we got to be sharing with them all the things that God's doing. Share with your kids the story of y'all's adoption over and over and over again so that, so that when they're teenagers, they haven't forgotten about it. Share with them the stories of what God's doing in your life over and over and over again so that they will not forget, so that we won't have a generation arise that forgets the Lord and that forgets what he's done for us. Every generation, because we're sinners, is a new generation of rebels. Every generation. We have a bunch of little short rebels in here and tall rebels. Every generation is a generation of rebels. Thus it is our task to ask for God's grace to be urgent and to be intentional, meaning that it doesn't happen by accident. There was a, a lady by the name of Carol Dukes. She was 41 years old, and she had a son named Charlie. And Charlie went on a, um, on a trip. She was in England. Charlie went on a trip to a camp. I don't know how old Charlie was. I think the story, he's 13, 14. He goes on a camp, a nature camp, so they can get away from the modern conveniences of life and, and enjoy nature. And uh, after they'd already left, she realized Charlie forgot something. And so she's frantic about making sure he gets this. And so she, she goes and she tries to catch them at the airport, but it's too late. So she spends hundreds of dollars to buy an airplane ticket at London Heathrow Airport and fly out to this location, this remote location. Um, matter of fact, I think the story said she spent like over $900. The location was actually about 1,000 miles away. And so she, she, she spends all this money, goes 1,000 miles. She's urgent about getting there. And when she gets there to the nature camp, she brings what Charlie forgot. You know what Charlie forgot? Charlie forgot his Game Boy. And she wanted to make sure he had his Game Boy. I thought, man, that mom is urgent and intentional. She has urgency about her. I just wish we were as urgent about the gospel getting into our kids as Carol Dukes was about her son getting a Game Boy at nature camp. And so it doesn't happen by accident. And so this week, I've been convicted about being sort of, sort of having this relaxed attitude. You know, we're a Christian home. We go to church and not feeling like I have to do that much. But in reality, that's exactly where Satan wants me. He wants me in a position of comfort and not doing the hard things I need to do to, to share the gospel with my kids. He wants me sitting there comfortable. He wants me thinking, ah, they'll get it by osmosis. It'll just kind of sink in. It won't. It won't. We will not hide. In the psalm here, he says we will not hide. The Hebrew term here means to bury a great treasure. So the picture here is that God is this glorious, magnificent treasure. And Asaph's saying, we're not going to bury that. We're not going to bury that. And you might be saying, well, I'm not trying to hide the gospel from my kids. But you know what? Failure to be intentional and urgent about them hearing about the great things of God is the same as hiding it. And so what are we burying the treasure of the glory of God with? Are we burying it with our busy schedules? Are we burying it with the stress that we come home with? Are we burying it with TV? Are we burying it 
with a thousand other things that have our mind other than sharing the glory of God with the next generation? What are we burying it with? But what other materials do we need to be a good generational architect? We need urgent intentionality. But we also need God-centeredness. God-centeredness. Verse 4 again. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and His might and the wonders that He has done. It's all about Him. It's all about the Lord. God is the subject of our teaching. He must be central in our lives. He must be central in our homes. And He must be central in our church. It's a very subtle thing these days. Very subtle thing to become off-centered. It's very easy to begin to think that church is about us. It's about me finding a purpose that drives my life. It's about me overcoming difficulties. It's about me doing this or me doing that. But the Bible is all about God. The Bible itself is radically God-centered. Does God want you to find purpose for your life? Absolutely. Does God want you to have peace and joy in your life? Absolutely. But as a byproduct of His glory being manifest in your life, the centrality of God has to command everything we do in our homes, in our church, in our individual lives. It's so easy to become off-centered. It's so easy to teach off-centered. For example, I've used this example before. Um, I cannot find, I have yet to have found in a children's ministry curriculum, a story, a a, a lesson about the feeding of the 5,000 that's not about the little boy sharing the bread. And it's a lesson about sharing. And I would get so frustrated as I would, I would look at these materials and, 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 and have to pass this on to my teachers and say, okay, guys, this is what the material says, but I don't want you to teach it like that because the feeding of the 5,000 isn't about sharing. Yes, that is a side story, but the feeding of the 5,000 is all about the sufficiency of Christ. The disciples even got off-centered later on. They're thinking it's about bread, and they're thinking, and Jesus said, no, it's about me. Feed on me. I am your sufficiency. You don't need anything else. And so it's all about God. It's all about Christ. The whole Bible is that way. The whole Bible is about God. The cross is about God. The cross is about the glory of God more than it's about us. But the gospel presentations that are most common in our churches is, look what God did for you. We should glorify and magnify the accomplishment of the cross. And just looking at that, looking at the the imputation of sin and looking at the the atonement, just looking at what's happening on the cross, that that draws men. You hold Christ up and that draws men. The cross isn't a fantastic self-help program. It's all about the glory of Christ the glory of God. It's so easy. It's so easy to build with corrugated cardboard boxes because man-centered religion feels so good. It feels so good. Just this morning, coming in here, I heard a radio uh, advertisement on the fish um, for some seminar. Some seminar, and this is what they said. 
come to this seminar and we'll teach you how to pray in such a manner that you're guaranteed that God will produce miracles in your life. Guaranteed that God will produce miracles in your life. God has become a means to our end instead of being the only end. He is the end. He's the one that's to be held up. And yet we treat our Christianity as some sort of way to get God to help us out. And that's not what it's about. And it can't be about that in our homes. Please teach God-centeredness in your homes. I need to do a better job of that. We all need to do a better job of that. So whether we eat, drink, or whatever we do, we do it all for the glory of God. God must be central in everything. The illustration I've used in the past to, to kind of show this is simply to use a, a bicycle wheel. All right? Please do not get mad at me. I haven't, like, damaged one of my daughter's bikes. This is from an old bike, okay? This, this, on this bicycle wheel here, I think the way we're programmed... And we're programmed like this because this is the way we treat all the rest of life. But you remember, God wants to turn our world upside down. We can't treat God the way we treat the rest of life. But the way we treat the rest of life is that we have lots of different compartments in our life that are these different spokes. And so we have our work spoke. We have our hobby spoke. We have our family spoke. We have whatever spoke, and this spoke, and this spoke, and this spoke. And, and our temptation is just to make God one of the spokes. God's just another spoke on our wheel of life. But that's not at all how it's supposed to function. God is to be the hub. He's to be the center off which every other spoke comes. And so what God's been dealing with me in my life is that if he's going to be the hub, then I've got some spokes I need to deal with because they don't need to be there. And so God wants to be central in our homes. And so whatever we do, horse riding or anything else we do as a hobby, as a family, a vacation, whatever we do, it should be coming off of a centrality of God in our life so that we're making decisions, we're handling our finances, we're doing things in such a way that all brings back glory to Him. He has got to be central in our homes and in our lives. And if you're here this morning and you know what? You don't have kids in the home. He needs to be central in your life now. Don't treat God like a self-help program. He is your all in all. So is God central in our homes? The next material after urgent intentionality and God-centeredness is simply Bible saturation. Look at verse 5. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel. God has not left himself without a testimony. I love this word that God uses when he refers to his word sometimes. It's his testimony. Okay? I don't know the quote, Deemer. You probably know it. Um, that there's a, a famous atheist who says something along the lines of, you know, what are you, what are you going to say to God if, if you get to heaven and you realize you're wrong? He's going to say, well, I'm going to tell God you didn't give me enough evidence. God's given us plenty of evidence. He's given us a book that's his testimony. It's his testimony to what he's done and to what he's doing and to what he's going to do. It's his testimony. It's right here. And so there is no excuse History is littered with churches and denominations that have withered away because they left this book behind. They left this book behind. Isaiah 55, 11 says, My word, this is a verse that Mark quoted earlier, So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the things for which I sent it. And so I think in our homes... The Bible has to saturate our homes in two ways. 
I think it first has to saturate our homes or our individual lives in, in scheduled, uh, formal times of reading it and of teaching it. And I'm ashamed to say that I have not done that well in my home. Again, you get complacent and you begin to think, well, they hear it on Sundays or they hear it. And no, it's not sufficient. There needs to be formal times that we're actually sitting down with this book as a family, but also as individuals and reading this book and letting it penetrate our lives. But also, I think the Bible should be present in our homes, saturating our homes in an informal way. So that, so that when our kids do something or when we do something, Scripture just comes to our mind. Scripture comes to our mind to deal with an issue. Scripture comes to our mind to comfort our wife or to comfort our kids. Scripture just comes to our mind. We're so saturated with it that it's there in a very informal way as well. So I think both formally and informally, the Bible should just be present in our homes at all times. I'm going to speed up here a little bit and see if I can get all the rest of the points in, in the last five minutes. Here's the rest of the materials. Parental responsibility. Parental responsibility. He established, verse 6, he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach their children. Okay? Parental leadership. Okay? It begins with parental authenticity. Uh, Deuteronomy 6, 5, it says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. First, it has to be here. It has to be here first. And so if we feel like we're failing in our home to to spread the, the joy of God through His Word, then it may be first because we're not doing it here. We're not loving God the way we need to, so we can't in turn try to get our kids to love God the way they need to. So it starts with authenticity. There's nothing worse than a parent trying to fake it. Um, Kids see right through that. Kids can tell whether we're authentic or not. As I said earlier, you will not be held accountable for your children's faith, but you will be held accountable for whether or not you teach your children and so Well, I, the responsibility especially falls on the shoulders of fathers. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, both father and mother. Verse 3, that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land. Verse 4, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. But how does this fit with the whole church? How does this fit with the whole congregation? Well, I believe the church should be here to equip parents. We should be equipping families. We should be equipping especially the fathers to disciple their kids. But the church is also here to complement, to assist, and to help parents with the discipleship of their kids. But ultimately, it falls on the shoulders of the parents. Now, I need a couple of kids to help me out real quick. Let's see here. Someone who's really strong. So Someone's got muscles. Um... Are you pointing to your sister? Oh, no, you want to come up? Okay, come on. Sorry. Sorry. All right. All right. You strong? Okay, I want you to hold this paper up, okay? Just hold it in your arms. That, can you do that? Good. All right. That is about 45 pieces of paper. I want each one of these pieces of paper to represent an hour. Or let's just say uh, an hour and a half or the amount of time that we have on a Sunday morning that I have 
that Rewind leaders have to invest in the next generation. Okay? These are important. These are vital. I, I do not believe that we're to throw these away. Okay? I believe this is vital. I believe each one's an empty page for us to write on the hearts of these kids. And, and so that's how, many, that's how many opportunities we get. There's about 45 there. I'm taking, there's 52 weeks in the year, but I'm taking into account that on days like today, there may be some missing. And uh, so there's, we're just going to kind of average it down to about 45. All right? So hold that right there. And since your sister is so strong, come on up here. Let me have you go over there. All right, Ellie, you stand right here beside your brother, and I want you to hold these, okay? All right, there you go. Got it? Yeah. Okay, doing good? All right, kind of going, all right. That is about 3,000 sheets of paper. These are the teachable moments that you have as parents. And, and, and the tendency has been, you doing Okay. The tendency in the church has been over about the past 50 years is to say, boy, let's get this down so good and, and, and then kind of relieve parents of this over here. And my vision, my, my vision, God's vision, I believe, for the church is to get that back in order. I don't think we throw this away at all. I think this is still necessary. The body of believers together we need to be investing in, I want John helping disciple my kids because I want them to see in John a godly father. Because you know what? I'm going to fail some. I'm going to make mistakes some. There's going to be temptation in Noah's life to say, is that true? But then when he sees other men say, yes, it is true, then he's going to say, okay, I believe it. And so this is vitally important. But of course, the opportunity here is even greater. Are you doing okay? No. No? Okay. Uh, There you go. All right. All right. I'll hold it. Ooh, that is pretty heavy. All right. But this... This is where it has to happen. And and if we're not equipping you to do this, then we're failing as a church. And I have felt so convicted about that. First of all, how many pages am I leaving blank in my own family? Because I'm sitting there without the intentionality I need. Hey, y'all have a seat now. How How much blank paper is just flying away? Those 3,000 hours I have in a year to invest in my kids. And so I've been convicted on that front, but also on the front of equipping parents. And we need to do a better job equipping fathers. We need to do a better job equipping you guys to, to, to minister to your kids at home and encouraging you to do it. Uh, I've got, I got, to be a good Baptist preacher, you've got to make things kind of either rhyme or all start with the le- same letter. So here's, here's my shot at it. In order to be a family-equipping church, we've got to empower parents. And that is to, to empower you to say, listen, this is your job. Take it. Go for it. Do it. And empower you to do it. And then we have to enrich you. And that is to help give you, give you tools to help you make it happen. If, if, you, if you're struggling to, to, to do family devotions, like I'm struggling to do family devotions, and, and you need some help, and that's what the church should be doing is helping you do that. Here's a great, here's a great book that I've used or, or here's a method that we use that works. I've got a two-year-old and, and the two-year-old sets the table on fire every time we try to do Advent. What do we do? Oh, here's what we do. Use battery candles, all right? So I- enriching you, but also encouraging you. 
Because you're going to have weeks like I've had where you just feel like a failure. And, and I need you to encourage me. And I need to encourage you. And we do it together. And I need those who are so much wiser than me, especially those of an older generation, to invest in my life. And I want my kids, be your grandkids, and investing in your life. And I want guys like Mark, I want to invest in him so that he won't make some of the same mistakes I made when I first started my journey of parenthood. I want to be able to tell Mark, Mark, man, I wish I could have done this better. And I want to invest in him. And I want him investing in my kids because, you see, Mark's cool and I'm not. And so I want them looking up to Mark. Saying, man, I want to be like Mark. And I want you guys investing in my kids. And I want to invest in yours. And I want to encourage you. And I want you to encourage me. So the three E's were empowering, enriching, and encouraging. And that's how we become a family equipping church. Doggone it. I'm not going to get to the final four points. Um. Well, let's just end right here then. I'll, I'll finish next week. Um, the vision goes beyond your children, guys. It goes beyond our children. Verse 6 says that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children. I'm convinced one of the reasons for my generation, it's so hard for us to invest, it's so hard for me to find, to do this, to do a family-integrated type of church. I think it's because... The generation before didn't model that for me. And my parents did the best they could. They know they made some mistakes. They know they failed in different ways. And they've repented of that. And they've, they've written me letters and said, Steve, I'm sorry. And I think they did a good job. And so I'm not saying that they did horrible. But I think the church is coming to a realization. And it's waking up to the truths of Deuteronomy 6. To the truths of Psalm 78. That we cannot... We cannot just split the family apart just like they're split apart during every other hour of the week. We can't just split the family apart and expect somehow that the next generation is just going to pop up and be godly. It's not going to happen. And so we want to bring the family back together for the children yet unborn. For Noah's kids. Olivia's kids. I, and Emma Kate's kids. Emma Kate. She's already, she talks about wanting to have a baby all the time. It's really scaring me. <laughs> She's even got her husband picked out, but I won't say who that is. We need God's grace. These are the building blocks. These are the materials, but we need God's grace. I should have made that number five. If you're anything like me, you feel totally inadequate, and you need to fall on your knees before an almighty God and beg for his gracious intervention and help so that you can do this. We need to pray Psalm 127.1. You know that psalm, that verse? That may be the next psalm I preach. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Let's end with that verse. And I want to welcome you to our time of response. Let's pray. Mark's going to lead us in a song. And then we're just going to have a time of response. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I ask, Lord, that you would just, um, Lord, take Psalm 78 and burn it into our hearts. Burn it into my heart. I've, been, I've preached this psalm three or four times, Lord. You know. You were there. You gave me the, the inspiration to preach it before. And yet here I am, years later, falling so short. 
So God, I ask for your forgiveness. And Lord, I ask for your help. Unless you build my home, it's going to be built in vain. Heather and I can't build it. We'll fail. And God, unless you build the home, God, everything else will just be like corrugated cardboard compared to the steel of your gracious work in a home. So God, I pray that you would encourage families. God, I hope this message just didn't just go in one ear and out the other to to those here this morning who don't have kids in their home. It wasn't my intention. So God, I pray that you would just use our this, this message in a way that brings you glory. I, I trust in Isaiah fifty five eleven that your word does not return void. And Lord, it, it doesn't say your preacher doesn't return void. It says your word. And so God, my hope is in your word. So God, we pray now that you give us a heart of response as we sing this song. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please stand with me if you would. And let's just have some time of response. You know, one thing we talk about is we've got the offering plate up here that you can come and respond with your offering. You can respond by bringing a prayer request and picking up a prayer request. But you know what? You can also respond. I'll be standing right here if you just need to talk to me or pray with me about something. But you know, something we've neglected is that we've got, we've got an altar here just to come and pray if you need to. Just come and kneel and pray if you need to. If you're a father here this morning and you just need to pray for your family, come do it. I'm not saying you have to, but it's all available. A response time is for the whole Everybody here, believers and non-believers alike, let's sing. Sing, O God, let us be generations that seek your face. God, let us be generations that seek your face. Oh God of Jacob, oh God, let us be the generations that seek and seek your face, oh God of Jacob. I sing, we bow our hearts and we bend our knees. We bow our hearts, we bend our knees. Oh, Spirit, come make us humble. We turn our eyes from evil things. Oh, Lord, we cast down our idols. Give us clean hands. Give us pure hearts. Let us not lift our souls to another give us clean hands give us pure hearts let us not lift our souls to another oh god let us be the generations that see seek your face Oh God, Jacob, oh God, let us be the generations that seek, seek your face, oh God, Jacob. I would just encourage you, and I say this to me as much as to you guys, um, just to, if God is working on your heart, um, just to recognize that 
your response um, may not just be this song, but it may be um, going and getting alone with God or making something right with someone. Um, just recognize um, that God may call you to respond in a certain way and just be open to that. Insisting we bow our hearts again. We bow our hearts, we bend our knees. Oh, Spirit, come make us humble. We turn our eyes from evil things. Oh, Lord, we cast down our idols. Give us clean hands. Give us pure hearts. Let us not lift our souls to another. Give us clean hands. Give us pure hearts. Let us not lift our souls to another. Oh God, let us be the generations that see. Seek your face, oh God of Jacob. Oh God, let us be the generations that see. Seek your face. Oh God, Jacob, and God, let us be the generations that see and seek your face. Oh God, Jacob. Let's pray again. Father God, let us be the generations that seek your face. God, I pray that um, Harbin Community Baptist Church would be a church that would pursue you hard. That eight-year-olds and 80-year-olds and people of all ages and backgrounds would come together and would be unified in you, loving you. And, and God, I pray that... Um, our older folks would teach our younger folks, and our younger folks would love and teach our older folks, and that you would be the center of it all, that you would be that hub, and that all the spokes would issue forth from you and would be about you and for you and for your glory. Help us to be a church where you're at the center of all things. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, a couple of uh, 